Hey folks, it's Jeremy, the host of Blamo. Thanks so much for listening. This is a preview of one of our exclusive shows on Patreon. These are member-supported shows, meaning they only happen because of our incredible members and community. So check out a preview of the episode, and if you like it, consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have tons of exclusive Blamo episodes, shows, our amazing Slack group, and we're adding new things for members all the time. If not, no worries, we still love you, and we literally have hundreds of episodes of Blamo all free for you to dive into. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, this is Derek. Welcome to the third episode of my podcast with Blamo. Since the last episode, I've been working on this big project on my site on how to develop good taste, which is kind of like a monumental subject because taste is basically everything that we're interested in when it comes to dressing well, like how do we express ourselves through our clothes and what does dressing well mean? In the last few years, I find that it's very difficult to have that conversation online because menswear has become so fragmented across different aesthetics. And we're also in this time where people don't feel comfortable, reasonably, to some degree, criticizing others online for their taste in clothes. Um, So I want to write a series on what does good taste mean, where do we get our taste, and how can we develop and refine it. I also talked to some people who I think have excellent taste, such as Bruce Boyer, Mark Cho, Rachel Tashjohn, and David Marks, on how others can develop good taste. It's a four-part series. The fourth post in this series will be published after this podcast episode. And um, in this episode, Jeremy, Rob, and I talk about the series. Let's dive in. So, Derek, I mean, I'll go ahead and jump in. So, you know, you started this series, more or less, called How to Develop Good Taste. Your your first article you posted was on August 26th. And... um, the most recent one you did, which was, you know, a kind of a, a combination of everything, but also talking about people like Bruce Boyer and in an interview that you did with him, which was wonderful and kind of honing in on what it means to have good taste. And I mean, if you could humor me and I, I already read this, but for some people that want like a, a brief taste of this, I mean, you, you, you talked that you were going to break this up into three separate sections. If you wouldn't mind just kind of kicking us off for a little bit of this. And then I have a bunch of questions about it. Um, So there's four sections, but it's basically one long intro. And then um, me asking people who I think possess good taste and me getting their opinion on what, uh, how to develop good taste. And the intro is basically just to set up the idea um, that taste is socially constructed. Um, I Mm. think this This whole thing kind of started because I've noticed, um, well, I don't know if I, we were going to launch into the whole, I, it's hard for me to summarize, but basically I've, (laughs) okay. Um, I think in the past there was, um, a narrow range for what good taste meant. And if you go all the back to like the early, early 20th century, um, at least in the United States and you know Britain, Western Europe, there was taste was generally set by elites, and over time, um, even starting in like 
even around the 1920s or so, there started start to show some cracks in that. And then that definitely sped up after the war where there was the whole kind of like explosion of sportswear. The rebel came, um, became kind of like a, a motivating force for design and fashion. Um, and then the, you have designer clothing, you have Armani, you have all these different groups, you have punks, hippies. And at this point, we live in a world where you can take your taste aesthetic from elites, but you can also take it from many different other kind of groups. Those groups can be orientated around music or culture or whatever it may be. Um, and I, this, I wanted to write this because I've noticed that in the last five to seven or eight years, mm-hmm. it's harder and harder to discuss clothing online mm. because in the early 20th century, if you ask somebody, how should I dress? There were norms set by time, place, and occasion. And those norms were all often shaped by the upper class. Um, it was very clear that if you went to this place at this time and you're of this social status and you had to do these things, this is how you're supposed to dress. Those norms obviously don't really exist anymore. I mean, you can go to a funeral nowadays in shorts and a t-shirt. I don't think um, you, you don't might think feel social pressure. You can go to a funeral in shorts and a t-shirt? Whose funeral? Yeah, no, man. You, you <laughs> Yeezy, absolutely Yeezy can funeral. go. No, you. I've been to funerals where people wear shorts. Damn. Um, I, and, you know, I recently posted um, a bunch of newspaper articles of people complaining about how people aren't as stylish as they used to. Oh, yeah, the Twitter and thread. I found newspaper yeah. Art- yeah, I found newspaper articles in the 1980s where people were complaining that people were showing up in, to funerals in, in shorts and T-shirts. Um, but that's still not the norm. This, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not. I, I'm not trying to push back that that much. But I, yes. I, I understand what you're saying. But yes, it, it's still not the norm. If if anyone I know, I've been to unfortunately a handful of funerals, and I've never seen anyone show up. I have seen people show up in sandals, and they were like, you know, they were like, oh, they would have wanted it this way, some sort of thing. Where it's like, whatever. I mean, do you uh, just to jump in? I mean, do you what? Like when I see, like I saw some guy. Actually, two situations from my um, workplace. One guy always wear like we went to kind of more a casual thing, but he wears like a backwards like Red Sox cap, like Red Sox aside. Um, I'm like, when did the dress code here become like hello nasty Beastie Boys like era Beastie Boys? Um, two, this guy was just like wearing just like kind of normal um, business casual, but then like Crocs, and I'm like, I really struggle. I'm curious what you guys think. Like, I'm like. I want everybody to feel comfortable with themselves, but it's just not sitting right with me. But I don't know if it's like me or if it's like, I don't like what, like, how do you guys deal with that situation? Do you want to just, like, You're talking in terms it? of a funeral, correct? No, not a funeral, but just like these are clear. Because I think what we're basically saying here, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that wearing certain kinds of clothes like T-shirt and shorts at a funeral is just not like the social like agreement as to what is appropriate to wear at, at uh, a funeral, right? Like. There are still some like codes around how one dresses at a funeral that may have been eroded elsewhere in society, but like that's just one too many hurdles for us, right? Is that well, is that about yeah? Right? But yes, and all these things are context. I personally, I personally don't mind what anyone wears. I, I never. Mean, really? I would wear. Doesn't like I would bother wear, you? Uh, it bothers me. I'm I'm, no. I'm willing to say like Derek. You know, who is this? Who 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 am I talking to right now? It wouldn't bother me if someone wore shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> Are you just I like, would find you, it you, odd. You know. I would find it. I would. 
I mean, I obviously took notice. I've been to funerals where people wore shorts and t-shirts and I took notice, but it doesn't bother me. I just think it's, um, I personally wouldn't do it. I wore uh, a suit to a funeral, but I think that's just, um, you know, it's just the world we live in. It wouldn't, I don't know. I mean, it just, it genuinely doesn't bother me. I mean, you walk down the street, you see people wear all sorts of um, unusual things. Well, it's, so it doesn't. again, all these things are context in the sense that like, and I think the the larger thing too that you're speaking at, and you know, I I, I want to dive further into the, the series, but like the context of walking down the street is is the sure you know is is very different because it's not all one type of people celebrating a certain thing or gathered around like you know a funeral is uh is a very in general is still a very awkward and interesting thing and and how humankind celebrates and mourns at the same time but like context right i mean you know i could have my 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 late grandmother passed during covid and she uh was a a uh american indian i don't know how people want to say it now but she you know she grew up on a reservation and all that stuff um i probably could have gone up and worn like old buckskins and stuff and people would have been like, yeah, okay. You know, but like that still would have been fucking weird. Like, I, I don't know. We can we can break out the funeral thing, but the, the I just thought it was funny when you were like, yeah, the shorts thing does Rob, you're Rob, you're Asian, right? I am Asian. Actually, I was gonna I had a funny follow up. But yes, yes. Are your parents are are you first generation? Were did were your parents born abroad? Yes. So an Asian did you grow up in an Asian community? Not at all. Oh. Not I mean either. I I yeah. grew up in an Asian community, and I mean, I, yeah, you people dress up for funerals, but I mean, um, I wouldn't say it's true. I'm probably gonna get heat from this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, uh, my hairdresser is Vietnamese. He mm. showed me uh, photos of his mom's funeral a couple of years ago, and there were a bunch of people in shorts, shorts and polo shirts. Well, but it, um, it, there's also again, it's like the context of that person right okay so in in the sense where if if it was out of respect and say that person was still alive and they saw that individual who was attending and they're like yeah that's my guy oh it's classic don wearing his burks and his shorts that guy there he is you know what i mean like, i don't know well it's do. not it's um i can't speak for all asians obviously there's <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, but, you can. Um, yeah, this, this should be. The I think you can. I, Derek guys, I grew up in an East Asian community, and uh, I don't, I don't know. It's not unusual to see people dress very informally at serious events. I huh. talked to um, George Wang, who told me about how he went to his daughter's recital. This is in Beijing. It's not in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But um, he went to his daughter's recital in Beijing. And the invite said, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it said formal. It basically told you like dress nice, dress up for this. Yeah. And um, people wore like shorts and polo shirts. You know, it was like that was, hmm. you know, he. We were using it as a context of like how dress norms can be very casual nowadays. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I genuinely. I don't, it doesn't bother me. If I saw someone, it just, it honestly doesn't bother me. The person, the the person that I went to a funeral and I saw someone in shorts, they were not Asian and mm. it was ma- mainly a white attendance. Um, but it was 
Yeah, I saw some people. I've, a lot of people were in jeans, chino shorts. They're just, you know, like normally, I guess you would say. I don't know. Hmm. Perhaps people, you know, I, I agree that's not the norm. But but my what motivated me to write this is not necessarily the general audience because, um, you know, people who are not interested in clothes generally wear whatever they want. And I think that's fine. Um, I find it difficult to have conversations about clothes, even with people who are interested in clothes. And I think that's because, again, in the early 20th century, there were these rigid norms, time, place, and occasion for clothes. Over time, that has watered down. But even even in like the early 2000s, up until 2010, 2012, there was still an idea of what someone was aspiring to dress like if they were into clothes, generally speaking. There was, you know, that prep wave. There was raw denim. If someone said, oh, I, I want to get some nice jeans, where do I go? You just assume that the answer is raw denim. Uh, if someone says, I need to dress for the office, what do I wear? You assume that, you know, like, oh, you need to get a sport coat. You need to get, you know, gray flannel trousers on that. Now, like, everything is so fluid, even within, among people who are interested in clothes, that it's very difficult to have conversations. And the conversations that I, I do see happen, someone will say, what shoes do I wear with these pants? Mm. And there's no agreed upon aesthetic. And I don't think it's possible to say, oh, you have blue pants, therefore you need brown shoes. Because that depends, right? Like if, if you are going after some other aesthetic, it might be Doc Martens. If you're, you know, like cherry, cherry colored Doc Martens. If you're going after a different aesthetics, it might be black combat boots. If you're, you know, it just, it depends on what aesthetic you want to go for. So the whole kind of article in the very beginning, uh, in the intro, I set up the story about um, uh, these early 20th century writers who followed this kind of prescriptive idea. They had this idea of aesthetics, of saying um, aesthetics follow these kind of like logical rules. Mm. And some of them, um, like the Goldstein sisters, believed that aesthetic rules were not only um, uh, like objective in fashion, but that, that they're universal for all of all of aesthetics. In other words, you could look towards architecture and nature and product design and all these things and understand what makes something aesthetically pleasing and apply those principles to your own dress. So ideas of harmony, balance, proportion, um, everything from Da Vinci's, you know, Last Supper to, you know, uh, you know, like Frank Lloyd Wright's kind of like buildings, you could derive all this understanding of the entire aesthetic world and apply it to your dress. And I think that was true in the early 20th century because, again, the the scope of what was considered beautiful was so was relatively narrow compared to what it is now. Um, but it is not true now. To give a, a hard example, um, the Goldsteins, for example, stress that um, a good outfit leads the viewer's eye towards the face because that is the expression of your personality. That's where you want the, your, you know, what you want the viewer to look at to have mm -hmm. a conversation with. You want mm -hmm. the focus to be on the person. So in that context, it would make sense that you don't wear shoes that stand out, right? And it makes sense. If you think of early 20th century dress aesthetics, the upper classes generally wore low-key shoes. Shoes were generally brown or black for men. 
And um, to the degree that they broke from that, it might be like a pair of white books. Um, but as you nowadays, I mean, you know, like sneakerheads can have very loud shoes mm. and it makes sense within that aesthetic. You, you can't, you can't apply these like classical principles to punk and hippie aesthetics and, you know, like Rick Owens and all, you know, there's, there's li- probably like hundreds of aesthetics at this point. Um, so the article goes through this idea of the the classic writers basically pre-war um and then post-war there are still some guys that kind of like followed this idea um Alan Flusser is obviously the most famous of them um, yeah. I think he's probably the last of them because uh Dressing the Man was published in 2002 and um that's probably I think um the last person who can make a career off of these ideas. Um, and yet, the problem, though, is that this kind of dynamic still happens online. People still talk about dress aesthetics in terms of this like culturally disembodied um, way. Um, so the second half of the article goes into a discussion of Bordeaux and how, you know, um, taste is often socially constructed. And... Um, well, well, let's let's chop then that up I, a bit because so hold on, Rob, you were about to say something. Go ahead. Yeah. Um. So I actually kind of broke down. So you kind of almost retell like kind of a history of like I guess ways in which taste is formed, and I kind of I just in my notes wrote them down as like rational, right? It's like very rule based, and that's what you were talking about with you know Flusser as an example. Then also authoritative, like kind of this elite like driven sort of like this is good taste. Um. And then you talk about sociology, um, a sociological view, which is when Bourdieu comes in. Um, I do want to, uh, and that's really just to throw out a framework so we can kind of jump in and out of this, uh, you know, for a listener who may not have uh, read the whole thing yet. Um, but I do want to touch on, because when you talk about the introduction of like kind of rules-based um, taste guidelines in the early 20th century, you couple it to the idea that now there's like a middle class that exists and they're actually kind of um, economically able to go out and buy clothes, but, you know, kind of emulating, you know, overseas fashion or whatever, but they kind of don't know, like nobody has been able to guide them through that. And that's where a lot of these rules come from. And I guess thinking about now and you, you um, mentioning, well, now there's so many different aesthetics that are available. Is that like, to your mind, like why it makes it so hard to talk about fashion because you can't really talk about rules. It's just this kind of like, uh, like almost postmodern like assemblage of of you know options available. Well, I think the rules make sense if you if you have a, a everything starts with like a first principle, right? Like in a philosophical sense. Mm-hmm. So as a first principle, if you and I agree that we want to look like Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. then those rules make sense because um, we both understand what is what we're aspiring to look like. And all of those kind of rules, I think the rules were, you know, they the people that wrote those rules couched them in this kind of like scientific way. But what they were trying to do was rationalize um, an aesthetic that a social class had created as a sociological practice. Elites created a look. And fashion writers try to, you know, kind of like 
ad hoc their way through creating a logical system to derive that look. But the look is sociological. It's it's an elite look, right? Like if you want to talk about the history of classic men's dress, that was shaped by elites in Britain, France, Italy, and the United States. And you you can pinpoint the people, you can pinpoint the tailors, you can pinpoint the dressers, you can talk about like the Duke of Windsor and you know his um, his contributions to that look. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those people did not sit in a room and think logically how to create a look. They just did things that they thought looked good. And then fashion writers after that tried to come up with rational principles to describe that look. So for people, especially nowadays, I think the problem is that um, that class functionally no longer really exists to the mm. degree that they exist. We're talking like, you know, there there are still like East Coast wasps, but they do not live in the social kind of like culture that classic men's or guys fetishize. Like you look at like, you know, Prince Harry and um, and such, he doesn't dress like his father, right? He dresses like of his generation. So um, for people who are trying to dress classically, that world is effectively gone, even for the class of people who constitute that class. Um, so the only way to achieve that look is to read about the rules and to think about all these things until it becomes obvious to you. I was um, on Style Forum, for example. Um, there was this long discussion that I found surprising um, where <laughs> there was a discussion on whether or not you can wear blue shoes, blue Oxfords mm. with a suit. For blue? anyone, like for the, blue. Blue. Like royal yeah, blue, blue or like, like Elvis? Oh, like blue side shoes. I don't even know. To me, there's no there's no context for blue shoes in a classic men's outfit. So for the people who, um, I and I'm I don't claim to obviously be a Fred Astaire wore blue suede shoes is a thing. That's I'm sure someone some ding dong said that. But go ahead. Yeah, dark navy looks good with khaki. But anyway, yeah, sorry. So for the people who um, lived during that time when tailored clothing was part of the functional part of their daily lives, they knew. That if you wore a suit, shoes should either be brown or black, right? That's mm. just like a logical thing. It's a, in the same way that um, most men today know that you don't that blue that jeans that are generally blue, they're not fuchsia, right? You can wear fuchsia jeans, but people know that that's not normal. So, um, but the, you know, like. The problem with this kind of like rational approach is that people will then take the, they have this idea of a rational approach to dress and they'll try to think, oh, well, like blue elongates your leg line. If, you know, if you're wearing blue suit, it's, it's, to me, it doesn't make sense. The only way to make sense of a classic men's outfit is to think of the people who shape that look. And want to hear the rest? Listen to the full episode and many more other exclusive episodes over on our Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash Blamo to sign up and join the Blam fam. You also get access to our exclusive members only Slack group where we chat about this and a ton of other things. So head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo and we'll see you there.